Welcome, everybody, to our ongoing nightclub interview series, where my guest today is the author, physician, and Ayurvedic practitioner, Dr. Kulrit Chaudhary, author of the book, Sound Medicine. I had such a terrific time talking to this amazing individual about the power of sound, the power of mantra. What exactly are these mantras? Where do they come from? How do they work? Can anybody engage in a mantra? What's the difference between over-the-counter mantras and prescription strength mantras? Are there any contraindications? How do you prescribe a mantra and then use it? We talk about the origins of sacred sound, how vibration works on a solo and gross body. We talk about transcultural aspects of mantra recitation and how mantras work at a such foundational level to bring about deep integrated healing, even at the level of karma. So join me for this remarkable conversation with a truly amazing individual in one of the deepest dives into the power of mantra that I've ever come across. Welcome, everybody. Andrew Holacek here. Um, I am particularly delighted to introduce to you um, a wonderful scholar practitioner that I can't wait to dive into the magic of sound, how it relates to healing, how it relates to transformation. So as usual, I will do a very brief formal introduction, and then we're just going to jump, jump right in. So Dr. Kulrich Chaudhary is an integrative neurologist, neuroscientist, and the former director of Wellspring Health at Scripps Memorial Hospital. She has participated in over 20 clinical research studies in the areas of multiple sclerosis, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, ALS, and diabetic peripheral neuropathy. She's the head of the Sri Narayani, is that how you pronounce it, Kulreet? Narayani. <laughs> Narayani, holistic center in Tamil Nadu, India where she is not only implementing the use of sound medicine in the treatment of chronic disease, but also studying the ancient Siddha texts that have been hidden from public view for centuries. So thank you so much for taking time. I know how busy you are. It's a total delight and honor for me to introduce you to our audience and um, big thanks from this side. Well, the feeling is mutual. There's, there's so much I want to talk to you about. I was really very taken by your book um, on a number of fronts. And, and I, I applaud you for both your courage and your capacity to act as a kind of cultural translator. You know, you're, <laughs> you're a magnificent conduit or a bridge between the ancient wisdom of the so-called East, which, you know, those boundaries are dissolving, and the modern knowledge of the West. And, you know, sound has been a monumental part of my own um, life. I'm, I'm actually trained as a classical pianist. Um, but most importantly, in, you know, I'm a student of Tibetan Vajrayana Buddhism. And as you probably know, um, a synonym is secret mantra Vajrayana, or sometimes even Mantrayana, the vehicle of sacred sound. So there's, because there's so much to cover here, uh, I thought we could perhaps, with your permission, Focus on some of the extraordinary practical applications of your book, because one of the great gifts is the way you conjoin um, theory, and I guess you could say it's theory simply because we haven't experienced it yet, with practicalities and, and the use, you know, your book, Sound Medicine, what a beautiful double entendre, the power of sound to both heal and transform. So um, let's talk a little bit about mantras and, and how they work 
<laughs> and um, you as a, as a physician and also a practitioner, how one goes about, um, for instance, prescribing mantras and the like. So there, there's so much to dive into here, but let's, t- let's take the little sh- uh, first shot across the bow with talking about this ancient art of sound and how we can use it for purposes of both healing and transformation. I'm so glad you're taking a practical approach because, you know, I love geeking out on this knowledge. Um, I absolutely love diving into the scientific aspects as well as the traditional knowledge. But if you're just reading it and not actually implementing it, it does you absolutely no good. (laughs) It's kind of like reading the menu at a restaurant, but having never sampled any of the food there. Um, So let's first just start with an explanation of what a mantra is. Many people ask me, what's the difference between a mantra and an affirmation? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, now, even in Western countries, we're using the word mantra very casually. And we oftentimes refer to something that's an affirmation um, as an actual mantra. And the difference is, An affirmation is a phrase that has meaning that an individual can repeat in different ways to help overcome a program in the mind. And they certainly can be helpful. A mantra is quite different in that, first of all, it is a sound vibration and not necessarily something that has any meaning. And what what that means is that the sound itself is the technology. It's not because the sound translates into some kind of a meaning to the mind. And the purpose of a mantra is to transcend the mind, meaning it's it's to pierce the mind, it's to go beyond the mind. So whereas an affirmation is there to help to maybe clear a particular pattern of belief, a mantra is to get to super conscious states where you're no longer as limited by the mind as a whole. Um, So it's a little bit like, you know, with affirmations, if you go out on the grass and you're trying to cut one strand at a time, um, whereas a mantra is more of a lawnmower where it just clears Mm -hmm. out the entire area. And so these, these mantras, even though mantra is the Sanskrit word for these sacred sounds, it's a form of sound healing that is found in every single tradition. Um, as you've experienced in the Buddhist tradition, when I was researching the book, what I found was that these traditions of sacred sounds were global at one point. And unfortunately, there's only certain cultures now that have retained that knowledge, but th- that does not mean that mantras are unique to them. It just means that they are now unique reservoirs for that knowledge, which is why you know people who are interested in the study may go to those areas, but they are actually present everywhere. And the purpose of a mantra is really that it creates entrainment, um, partly, you know, cognitive or, or brain entrainment. And what that means is that the frequency and the, the resonant frequency of the mantra has the capacity to change the way in which the brain is actually firing, which not only then has an impact on, you know, the mind, but on every cell in the body. So that's kind of like the, the fundamental, the simplest possible explanation, you know, of mantras. 
And many people will ask like, well, where did these mantras come from? The theory behind mantras is that they they have always existed. They're frequencies in nature. It's kind of like saying, where do bird songs come from? Or where does the sound of the ocean come from? Or where does the sound of the wind come from? These were vibrations that were that are present on a non-audible level that were then perceived by individuals who through deep practices in meditation were able to enter that vibratory code that is underlying kind of the world that we see. And when they were able to interact with that vibratory code, they were then able to translate what is non-audible into an audible signal that can be recited by the human voice or you know done internally but that vibratory code then has a certain frequency that is impacting the entire body so that's kind of the science and technology of of mantras i think it's it's really fantastic and and what i so appreciate about your book excuse me is that in buddhism they talk about you know, the extraordinary power of right view. <clears throat> and for instance, like when I did my really long retreat, we had a number of lamas come in and they would teach us extensively about the views behind these practices and what does it mean to accomplish these practices. And so when I read your remarkable book, Kulrita, I was, I was struck. It was like, oh my gosh, I wish my lamas 25 years ago would have given me your book because <laughs> it's not something that right view for mantra. Uh, uh, in in Tibetan, as, as you probably know, the it's really, uh, the term is translated work with as mind protection, uh, that which protects the mind. And yeah. I so love the intimation of what you talked about it, how it is that it, that it actually pierces the mind. Because in the, in the subtle inner yoga systems, you know, in, in Tantrayana, Vajrayana, probably a third of Vajrayana is devoted to the inner yogas. And this is where, of course, um, sound works. Sound works with the subtle body. And so when you talk about piercing the mind, there's a common kind of common parlance in the inner yogas where they, they talk about penetrating the vital points, yes. which of course, in this case would be penetrating the, the vital points being the chakras with sounds that are specific to actually opening those chakras. Because, yes. uh, you know, one of the definitions, my favorite running definition of meditation is in fact, habituation to openness. And so in this way, you're, you're actually working with subtle body anatomy and physiology as a way to transform not only the body, but also the mind. And so to further substantiate the power of view, can you talk, because the other thing was so great about your book was the way you brought in with such elegance, the phenomenology of the subtle body and how sound works on that. So let, let's turn to that. Like, what, what are the, what's the phenomenology of mantra recitation? What's going on with the subtle body that affects this kind of physical and spiritual transformation? So you literally read my mind because the, the thought that was coming up that I just wanted to share was, ah, but the subtle body has very profound impacts, you know, on the physical body and on the, on the mental body. So <laughs> yeah. You, you read exactly what was starting to get cultivated um, inside of my, my mind. Otherwise, we would say, what's the point? You know, like, oh, that's nice that something is happening subtly. But what people often don't realize is what happens subtly happens then on the gross level much faster. You know, I compare it to 
like the breaking of different bonds. Like when you break chemical bonds in gunpowder, you have a certain amount of energy release. But then when you break atomic bombs, you have even more energy released. And so when you break patterns or when you open up channels on a subtler level, the energetic consequence of that is much more profound, both mentally and and physically. And what we see with with our patients when we're doing this work, and the way that I approach patients is, you know, we do the dietary changes, we we do the exercise changes, we'll add the natural supplements to help to, um, you know, facilitate the physical and mental healing. But when we add the sound practices or any of the practices that, you know, we utilize that are opening up or shifting the subtle body, what we find is that once those energies kind of open up, the shift on the physical and mental level is dramatic. So what might have taken years to accomplish happens in a very, very short amount of time. Um, Programs in the mind that many people are not even aware of suddenly start crumbling and they just suddenly look at something that previously seemed like a an, an impossible problem to solve and then the answer is just immediately there and that's you know also in terms of their personal life not just like in their professional life so when these channels in the subtle body open up it, it's like solutions come instantaneously and, and sometimes the body still does need some time to adjust to that you know sometimes people will go through like a detoxification because all of these emotional pollutants will suddenly come to the surface and then they'll have joint pain or a rash. And I just go, don't worry, this is now just the physical body clearing that. But then as that clears, it's like having access to a completely new life in that physical realm and in that mental realm that you didn't have before. And, you know, so much of the discussion now kind of like in the business world is unlocking the, your mental potential um, and one of the things that really blocks the mental potential is um, our, our physical health. And so when we unlock these, these subtle channels, what we're doing is we're opening up access to the mind and body that we didn't have because of those blocks before. Mm. And, you know, it's interesting what you what you said, though, about wishing you had access to this knowledge 20 years ago. I, I did, too. I wish I had access. Okay. I started a mantra practice when I was nine years old and didn't really understand the science behind it. And I'll tell you, I am so, I am so much more committed. Not that I was really skipping, but I, there's just a deeper level of appreciation for what I'm doing, not just for myself, but on a much larger scale, every time that I engage in my mantra practice. So it's really enriched my, my life having this um, intellectual understanding, this deeper intellectual understanding of this technology. And it's isn't a huge part in the West, Kulri, because you know we don't have the type of devotion and surrender we have to wisdom traditions in, in the West. You know, we we capitulate to the high priests of the West, which are scientists. And so the the attraction that you bring into this with your juxtaposition of physics and neuroscience is absolutely brilliant, and and that's why it so speaks to us in the West. And so I just want to put an exclamation mark on a couple of things you said. Because this also ties in very deeply to what we do, you know, in this community. We work a lot with dream yoga. And dream yoga, in fact, uh, um, works with the subtle body. And so exactly what you're saying here is that 
this is uh, one reason like people ask, well, why should I bother with mantra recitation? Why should I bother with things like dream yoga? Well, in, in the tantras, it says, in the Mahamaya tantra, um, Tibetan Buddhism, it says that the practices you do exactly like you're alluding to in these subtle dimensions, like with mantra and dream yoga, are seven to nine times more efficacious and transformative, right? precisely oh, because you're working with these um, tectonic plates of your very existence. And so this is super important for us to understand in the West, yes. that the growth body is epiphenomenal. Uh, and actually, you, we could even, maybe even say an, an epigenetic expression of the supple body. And so by targeting like that. that, you're starting to transform the outer. And the other thing I wanted to say that, that was so compelling to me is, you know, my teacher, Trumpa Miche, once famously said, meditation isn't a sedative, it's a laxative. And so... <laughs> So when you're involved with this stuff, this brings the lack of approach to a, a to actually a kind of a subtle body physiological approach. That we're actually opening things up, and guess what happens? Sometimes the crap comes up. Yes. So then we have to have the fires. This is where perhaps we could maybe for briefly into Kundalini to kind of burn up what comes yes. up. But let's go further because again, you're so uniquely situated to talk about. Um, even more deeply what's happening at the subtle body because in fact as a neurologist one of the words that I play with here is you know the big jingle in, in neuroscience for the last 23 years has been this principle of neuroplasticity right that what you do with your mind changes your brain well I would conjecture I'm, I'm curious to see how this lands with you that when you're working with sounds at this level you're working with Oh, this is my neologism. You're working with nadi plasticity. Hmm. You're actually working with um, opening and actually transforming the configuration of the nadi and chakra structure itself. So does that does that resonate? Pardon the pun with your own knowledge and a hundred percent. And um, when we look at like the way that the siddhas and the Ayurvedic um, you know masters looked at what human being is they saw the diagram of the different sheets that encompassed that inner consciousness, you know, which has so many different names, either the soul, the divine spark, God, whatever you want to call it. And they were able in such detail, which to me is, it's, it's sort of ridiculous, the amount of precision they had in describing a human being, not just on the physical level, which just from their meditations, they were able to draw so precisely the entire human anatomy. But they went deeper into these other realms and they did the same thing. They described the anatomy of those other realms. And from their teachings, what we're seeing is that just like the human body has a certain pattern to it, these other subtler bodies also have a certain pattern to it. And there's things that can get stuck, essentially. Um, and they're too deep. They're, they're too deep for us to be able to reach through physical practices, even through mental practices, because they're stuck at levels that go far beyond the mind. And so the beauty of these um, technologies, and I, and I love that uh, term that you used, uh, you know, whether this is naughty plasticity, is that these techniques, they're aimed at unleashing what we call the, the seed form of the karmas. And people oftentimes misunderstand the word karma. They look at karma as something that happens when you've been bad. Mm -hmm. and, and it's not. Karma is just something that happens whenever there's action. 
And from that action, certain vibrations are set into motion. And because we are vibratory beings, and some of those vibrations are so dense that we can see them, which is what the physical body is, and some of those vibrations are less dense, but we can feel them like the mental body. And anybody who's walked into a room where they, they know everybody has been talking about them understands what I mean, is that there are certain variations you can feel even though you can't see, such as our thoughts and our emotions. Um, there are even subtler vibrations that make us up. And those, vib those vibratory realms need technologies that are as subtle as those realms to actually be able to pierce. And those subtle vibratory realms are where the seeds that we have sowed exist. And that's, it's just, it's, it's really hard work to get to those realms. I mean, you, you do have to go somewhat sequentially in that there is a physical clearing. And I'm sure your own practice in Buddhism has revealed this, that there are layers where it requires first a physical clearing and then a mental clearing. And then the soil is kind of fertile to really start to bring up, you know, and, and pull out those seeds that have been generating all of the phenomenon that you see in the physical world and all of the phenomenon that you see in the mental world. And it wasn't until we did the work, you know, at the center in India, because that was the that was the first place that I had ever combined the Siddha techniques, which are all of these techniques for rearranging um, or accessing might be a, a better way to say of, of accessing the nadis in the most subtle arenas. It wasn't until I did the work there where I was able to see what it looked like when somebody actually burned one of those seeds. And it was dramatic. I mean, it was very dramatic. The physical response was very dramatic. The mental response was very dramatic. But when we were able to help them to get to the other side, they were just no longer the same person. The things that they were haunted by, you know, physically and mentally were no longer there and it was, a, it was very much like a child waking up from a bad dream saying, oh my gosh, I can't believe I thought that awful dream I was having was real, how good it feels to be awake in the embrace of you know, these loving parents and to know that I'm safe again. That was the experience and it was that dramatic and it was you know, that, that quick. And so there's an entire set of technologies of which Sound is the most universal and it's the one that is the most readily available. Certainly there's other technologies in the medicine, but you need a practitioner for that. Um, you know, or it could be a program that you have to you go physically and do in person for three months. Sound is something that anybody can do. It's globally available, you know, no side effects. It's inexpensive. <laughs> it's free <laughs> most of the time. And so this is one of those technologies on at the naughty level that is just gifted to the world. That's really terrific. And a couple of things came to mind before we began this. To me, it's a little bit like, what you're bringing here that I think is so powerful is um, integral healing. Uh, it's so much what I love about your work that, that you, you avoid this kind of absolutistic approach in the West that you know everything has to be reduced to these, these silly materialistic paradigms. And you have this wonderful, elegant raised gaze where you bring about this integrated approach to healing, which really 
we can speak this language on this podcast, which is fundamentally not just the the physical expressions of this foundational pathology, which is really you're you're actually talking about karmic healing. Yes. You're talking about getting to the very core. And so what 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 I clicked on here is how it is that, that you know I've come to view mantra again using this maximum of penetrating the vital points. Mantra is kind of like um, analogs to audible acupuncture needles. <laughs> where you can actually deliver, precisely deliver with a skilled practitioner, a mantra that will in fact act as a kind of acupuncture point that will in fact then redistribute openness energy. And so um, the one thing I do want to, to query you a little bit further on this is that in the Tibetan world, um, and I, I completely agree with you when you talk about anybody can work with, with mantra, sound, that sort of thing, but in the Vajrayana, there's also a, there's a little bit of a surgeon's uh, warning here in, in, the, in the sense that something that has this power to cure has a, somewhat a correlative power to, I wouldn't say harm, but you know, you're talking about really supercharged methods here. And so in the Vajrayana, there's always one, one reason it's called secret mantra Vajrayana is that there are um, over-the-counter mantras and then in the Vajrayana, there are prescription strength mantras. And the reason this is somewhat interesting is that precisely because these, these practices are so transformative and you're dealing with such foundational dimensions of being, that in the Vajrayana, it says that if one doesn't have a, a stable mind to, in fact, deal with some of the laxative ingredients, so to speak, when this stuff <laughs> comes up, that, that it can be potentially destabilizing. So can you speak to a little bit about that, that something, it's a little bit like the placebo nocebo effect, that, that that which has the power to cure, if it's not harnessed properly, also has a kind of concomitant power to um, possibly be a little bit slippery or tricky. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So first of all, I just, I absolutely love your metaphors. Um, and it's a real pleasure to be asked these kinds of questions. Um, most of the people who interview me haven't gone so deeply into the practice to be able to ask this. So this is wonderful. Oh, I'm so, um, so I 100% agree. And so even in selecting the mantras that I gave in the book, that consideration was in play of which mantras are just the over-the-counter mantra. Mm-hmm. You know, which mantra is just the the Tums you know, where you can take it occasionally, uh, and I'm talking about taking Tums occasionally now, um, on your own, and you're absolutely fine. And so all of the mantras that I mentioned in my book are those over-the-counter mantras. And when you get into more of the prescriptive mantras, that's typically done with somebody who has a deeper experience with mantras, what we call a nada yogi. Mm. Um, and my, my husband falls into that category. And by the way, that's not something that you can choose to become. That is something that is gifted to you. We only found that out when it happened to him because he was just literally gifted that and woke up with this. Um, it felt like he just woke up with this ability. And so that comes to two points. One is there's certain mantras that when you are pulled into that tradition, you're given and you would never share anyways. And that's because before this center that can be activated, that carries the power of mantra, before that happens, the individual goes through a process of um, spiritual maturity where they not only understand the repercussions of it, um, but they they would also suffer pretty strong consequences for violating because they'd be consciously now violating that. 
So many, many mantras would never be, you know, shared publicly. And there's, in fact, one mantra in particular in the um, Siddhartha tradition that I was really um, after. And many of these mantras are not written anywhere. So it's not really an issue of, well, will the wrong person be given the text? Many of these mantras, when somebody gets to that point of receiving the mantra, the mantras are then experienced on their most primordial level. Um, so it's not given as part of a written tradition. It'll either be given to you orally by a spiritual teacher who's embodied, or you will get it in a completely different plane that, you know, again, it doesn't have to be protected the way that something does in the physical. Um, but there is a particular mantra in the Siddha tradition that I just so absolutely wanted and um, my spiritual teacher had. It's one of the most powerful and yet simplest mantras um, ever created. And, you know, her response to me was just, you're not ready. Like, you're not even close to ready. <laughs> you know? It was like, come back in like 20 years, you know, and that was my inference from the conversation. But it was almost just this look of disbelief that like, you know, I even thought I could handle, um, you know, the mantra. And there have been ceremonies where I have attended where those kinds of mantras have been used. And they have said, do not repeat this, because if you do, your body will go completely out of balance, um, because it does take a, you know, a particular type of individual to be able to contain the energy generated with that. So that is absolutely true. And the kind of work that I do and what I have generally found is the mantras that you can access in written form are not typically the mantras that carry that kind of power. But now the second thing you said about can mantras be used to harm? Well, yes, mantras can be used for any kind of direction. But again, there is this process of your power with the mantra grows as your spiritual maturity grows. And so even as people are given certain mantras, maybe they found them somehow that can be used for harm. First of all, that harm is going to come right back to them. Um, because that's part of the science of mantras, that everything that you are generating it is eventually making its way back to you. And so the individuals that do reach that level of mantra yoga, they have no desire for that. Right. You know, I, I, I think of my husband oftentimes who, you know, he's been so deeply embraced by the Siddha tradition and many yogic traditions, oftentimes just because of the purity of his of his heart, which I, it took me a long time being married to him to get why that was important. <laughs> you know, and then you go to India and then you just see kind of how he draws all these spiritual masters and how much they open up to him. I'm like, oh, this is really important. Um, and, you know, certain things that he's been given, they're absolutely priceless, you know, and I'll say, why don't you use it for this? Or why don't you use it for that? He, he has no desire to use them in a way that would earn him anything that is a value on in the material world, if that makes sense. Um, he's so immune from that. And I'm realizing that it's that immunity. That is why people are, are given those techniques. So it's, it's a combination of lack of access, but then also the, the power to use mantra grows as your spiritual maturity grows. And as your spiritual maturity grows, the way in which you use mantra is with greater and greater discretion. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us. And a special thanks to Cole Reed for sharing her remarkable knowledge. 
research and experience in the arena of sacred sound. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out all the other offerings on Nightclub. Lots happening these days. Till next time, pleasant dreams.